0: This episode of the Finding <laughs> Strength Podcast is freaking great.
1: It is awesome. It's yeah. great.
0: We have our good friend Kevin Thacker on the show, talks about his recovery journey. Yeah. 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 From severe heroin addiction, drug addiction, alcohol stuff, all the way up until now, he's a business owner and he does his freaking, lives this awesome life, got relapse, you got Drama, intrigue. It's there's a lot in this episode that's definitely Call worth checking dump. out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I get it in a soapbox. You ready for that? A people. Soapbox. <laughs> uh, surprise, no, Mac gets passionate. Yeah, Weird.
1: I know, no, it was good. It was good. You <laughs> good. know? Yeah.
0: Well, we hope you guys enjoy it. And um, while we're here, don't forget to leave us a five star review on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcast stuff. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram. TikTok.
1: Don't forget about YouTube. YouTube,
0: uh, email, website. I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're not giving all that uh, out. I'm just
0: kidding. <laughs> you can uh, find us though. Yeah. Yep. Thanks for listening, watching. Enjoy. We're back. We're back. It's the Finding Strength Podcast. (laughs) Here we are with our freaking homie, Kevin. The man Thacker.
1: Yeah. Thanks for
0: coming on, dude. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So true story, years ago when we first started the podcast and it was me and Bethany, Mm -hmm. Brittany and I were sitting down and I was like, I wonder who we could get as a guest. And she's like, oh, I have this friend from friggin' junior Junior high (laughs) that would be a great story. He's like in recovery and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, what's his name?
1: Kevin Thacker. <laughs> and
0: I was like, oh, I wonder who that guy is. And now we're like really <laughs> good friends. It's amazing how that all works out.
1: I know. That is so weird. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, story.
0: really cool. So before we get into this episode, let's let's recap the last one super briefly yeah. so that people can go and check it out. We did our two-part series with Maui. Maui. Yeah. Yes. We had
1: Maui come on and um, just share a little bit more into depth about his healing process and We talked about plant medicine. We talked about meditation. We talked about, um, you know, just his overall recovering from the trauma that he went through with his son being murdered. And it was really... It was good. It was really good. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's a sleeper. Not a lot of people have listened to it yet, but if if you haven't heard it yet, that's one of my favorites we've ever done because there's so many good, like, practical actionable things that you can use mm-hmm. in your life, which is definitely one of the main aims of our podcast is give you information, but also give you stuff you can do. do yeah. And that's a really good one that has a lot of that stuff in it. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Check that so, one out. Go check it out. Beautiful.
1: Yeah. But today we have Kevin, we're going to have him share his story. So we're going to just kind of jump way back. Um, Just a little background of like where you're from, like, you know, how many siblings do you have? Only child like that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I am from Utah, uh, born and raised for the most part, have lived here my whole life. Um, I grew up in a single parent household. It was always me, my mom and my little brother. Um, I do have five little brothers in total. All of us are half siblings. None of us have the same set of mom and dad. Um, it's either we have the same mom or the same dad. Um, and so growing up, we moved a lot. Um, we, I think I went to 10 different schools in total. Um, and it was always centered around, um, either, spousal abuse, domestic violence, um, job change, you know, there were so many different reasons and I'm not even sure that I know today if the reasons I was being told were real. Um, it was, you know, there was maybe one or two where it was a planned move where it was, you know, we had time to think about it and we were planning on it. And then there were a lot of times where it's like, Hey, pack your stuff. We have to go.
1: Oh, wow. Um,
2: and you know, that, really messed with me as a kid because I went to, you know, numerous elementary schools and I really struggled making friends. And then right when I felt like I was making friends, I would get rooted up and have to go to a new school and a new place. And, um, you know, it was always me and my little brother. And so we went through a lot of the same things together. And I felt like as a kid, my job was to protect him Mm -hmm. um, because I was a little bit older and so I was able to, you know, kind of understand what was going on a little bit more. And so I felt like I needed to protect him. Um, we moved from house to house and guy to guy. And it was um, it was pretty awful. Yeah. You know, I, I got to see early on the effects of drugs and alcohol in the household. And I got to see the effects of domestic violence and abuse and some of those things. And um, I really beat myself up over it because Mm. I was too small to do anything. Mm. Um, That part really got to me is not being able to do anything. Um, One of the hard parts with going through something like that as a child is we were told to lie about what was going on. We were told to hide it. I was, you know, I wasn't allowed to talk to my grandparents or talk to my dad and tell them, you know, the truth of what was going on. You know, the truth of hearing my mom in the other room getting beat. Um, you know, the truth of um not having money for school clothes and things like that. It was always, you know, anytime we would get together with family, how are things going? Oh, they're going great, they're going fine. We're in a new school because I got this new opportunity. But really it, it was a facade. Yeah. Um, and it was really uncomfortable. You know, it it was really kind of um scary at the same time.
1: Very unpredictable, um, like day uh, by day. Absolutely. You just didn't know what you were getting.
2: Absolutely. And and you know, it got to a point where making friends was not only hard, but it was scary because I didn't know if there was going to be able to stay friends with them. Yeah. Um, you know, and so we, we bounced around a lot in Salt Lake and then we finally moved down to um, you know, where you and I met in American mm-hmm. Fork. And that was kind of uh, a more permanent place. It was the one time where we <coughs> moved a few times, but we stayed in the same in school.
1: school. Okay.
2: And so that was a little bit different. Um, but that's where I kind of felt like I was able to um, find a group of long, uh, more long-term permanent friends, and unfortunately, um, some of those friends um, we we didn't make some of the best choices together, and so that's also uh, when I started experimenting with you know drugs and alcohol myself, and it was um, you know seventh grade, eighth grade. Um, I started, you know, using and and doing things. And and it wasn't just drugs and alcohol. It was a lot of the behaviors. Um, I started skipping school. I started stealing from stores. Uh, We, you know, we would go out at night and vandalize and, you know, do anything we could to just live a little bit reckless. And and I look back now and I'm like, man, what was I thinking? Um, And and if I try to remember what I was thinking, I was just trying to fit in. Mm. Um, there was a huge part of me that was just trying to fit in. Um, when I was uh, about 15, my little brother was 13. My mom went to jail the first time. Um, she went to jail for, uh, I think she got her, her original sentence was for a year, um, but she was there for less time than that. But that's when me and my little brother got split up. Um, so he went to live with his dad out of state and I stayed here and went to live with my dad and grandparents and I kind of bounced back and forth. Um, it was a little hard for me to, to find somewhere stable because I wasn't stable. Um, you know, I was getting into trouble. Um, I was kind of a tough kid at that point.
1: How was your experience when you would go with your dad? What was that
2: like? My dad struggled with his own stuff at the time. Um, he had just gone through, he, was, he lived in California for most of my childhood life, and he remarried out there and had another son, and his wife out there went to prison a couple of times. Uh, she went to prison, got deported, came back over, went back to prison, and my, one of my little brothers was actually born in a California prison, and he, he was born and handed to my dad.
1: Wow. So my
2: dad was tasked with raising this baby from birth almost by himself, very little support out there. And so when he finally did move back to Utah, you know, he had this very young child who he was trying to raise. Um, He was also, you know, a, a, a construction laborer, a drywall guy. And so, you know, financially, he struggled a little bit. And his story is actually one that I draw a lot of inspiration from because, you know, he, he struggled for a number of years. And then there was a point where he kind of said enough's enough. And he went back to school. He got a degree. He reenlisted in the army and, you know, he's pretty successful now he does pretty well. And he's a great guy.
1: That's cool. You know,
2: he, he. He did the best he could, I think. I mean, it, not to, to bash on my mom, because I do believe my mom also did the best she could mm-hmm. with what she had and what she was taught and what she knew. Um, but my dad really just chose to buckle down and uh, make something for himself and in in turn kind of helped establish a foundation for my younger brother.
0: Have you always felt that way about your mom?
2: Um <laughs> No, that, that goes back and forth. Um, I think early on, I really blamed my mom, my mom for a lot of stuff. Naturally, I, going, yeah. Going through a school, I blamed her. Um, you know, when I would go over to friend's house and they, you know, lived in what I would consider a little bit more of a normal, um, world. Um, I would blame my mom and I was very angry at my mom. Um, and then I went through um, 10 or so years where I was heavily using and my mom was heavily using, and she was the one that was getting me out of trouble and helping me get out of consequences, whether, you know, whether they're jail consequences and things like that. Um, she was helping me, you know, enabling me with all of those things where it was like, you know, I would blame the world. For what mm. you know, me and my mom were going through, mm. um, and then you know, at the age of of twenty eight, and I'm thirty eight now. Um, but at the age of twenty eight, when I first got clean and, and got into recovery, um, one of the hardest things that I had to do was put space between my mom and myself, mm. and it was because uh, you know I was trying to live a different way, and she was still very much in that world.
0: Yeah. You brought up a really interesting um, kind of concept. There's this idea of what's called a locus. It sounds like locust, but it's locus of control. And one of the things that we see in healthy people, uh, people who you know don't necessarily have severe mental health problems or overcome severe mental health problems or, or go get into recovery and stay in recovery, is they have a locus of control that is internal, meaning that I have this belief that I have the focal point of control within me. And so I am responsible for my life. What many, many people end up doing is they have this external locus of control where they put the onus, the responsibility for their life situation on external factors, moms, dads, poverty, uh, whatever, you know, and, and, and through no fault of anybody's own, right? Like that's that's a natural thing to do is to look outside of me and go like well i'm in this situation because of them because of this because of that however that mentality is almost like this this choice thing that we have and one of the things that i love about you man is is your internal locus of control is something that you have developed over time. That's not something that was taught to you or that you learned as a young child. It's something that you were able to develop and begin to understand and apply to your own life. So I'm curious, like, what was it that you did or what are things that have helped you to realize that your locus of control is internal?
2: I think that was a really slow process for me. I, it was very gradual. It wasn't uh, you know, a flashy eye-opening experience or anything like that. Um, I moved into a house with eight other guys who were all in recovery. Mm. And that was the first time that I was surrounded by accountable people. Um, I had never been- How old are you this time? 28 as well. 28.
0: Yep, yep. So, So your recovery journey- Started how old? When I was twenty eight. Yeah. So it started at twenty eight. But before that, you were running and gunning and yeah. drugging and yeah. doing all those the age crazy of
2: thirteen to twenty eight. I was in and out of jail. I was using the entire time. Um, I would, you know, I was the type of person that was using in jail. What's I, your I, drug of choice? Um, heroin, opiates. Okay. Um, but I have at any point used any drug, any drug? under the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Yeah. And so, you know, it was in and out of jail. I was using in jail. I would go to um, some sort of treatment, um, but I was usually the one trying to get away with using and figuring out how to game the system in treatment. And so when I moved in with this house full of guys, I don't know that I was fully committed to be in recovery. I was just trying to see what else was was out there and what else was, was available. And being surrounded by personal accountability had the biggest impact Huge. on me um, because I was so used to figuring out how to blame my mom. I was so used to figuring out how to blame, you know, other friends, how to blame the system, I'd blame my probation officer, um, you know, blame anybody that I could. And, and once I got to a, a place in my life where I saw other people taking accountability for their own actions, I was willing to try it. Um, it, it wasn't that I saw it and I was like, oh, yeah, that's the way I'm going to live, but I was willing to try it. And the feeling that I got when I learned how to be accountable for my own actions carried me into a place of um, self respect. That's huge. Oh, yeah, that's huge. Yeah, it, it carried me a place where I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'm not a piece of crap. So it sounds
0: like there's a relationship between blaming everybody and having this victim mentality, the external locus of control thing and respect, self-respect.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, there's a definitely a a deep down piece that anytime I go into a dishonest manipulative state, which I have in recovery, and and we can talk more about that in a little bit, but, um, that I lose my self-respect and then I start looking at external things to blame. Yeah. And, and and it's just, such a common habit for people. Well, right? like
1: playing that victim mentality, right? We love yeah. to do that. We love to, cause we don't want to take the blame for what is happening to us in our lives.
0: But we're so like obsessed with our responsibility, right? Like I I'm, I want to focus so much on what I am and am not responsible for, and I get lost in this like battle of like, well, that's them and this is me and whatever, and I can't do anything or I can't do something. Like, it's how se- much it's-
1: of that is the ego? Eh?
0: How much of that is? Does the, the ego? ego play into that? Ego is huge in that role. the The ego's primary job is is to preserve a sense of identity. Right. Okay. So my my brain there's actually a part of your brain that is responsible for ego identity stuff, yeah. right? <clears throat> and what your ego's trying to do. Basically, when you when you look at your brain, your brain has crafted what's called a mental model for the world. It's trying to fit everything around you into that mental model. That mental model has been created through your life's experience. And so for the first, you know, 15 years of your life, like what is the mental model that Kevin created? Right. I can't trust anybody. It's dangerous out there. I got to try to fit in in any way that I can. That's the only way I can keep myself safe. I definitely can't trust my mom. I don't know what's going to happen next. So it makes sense that my mental model for the world is the outside world dictates my life. And so that's, we can't, blame people for having that belief system. That's normal. That's actually adaptive and and, right. I need that for my survival. So my ego creates this this mental model for the world that I have to blame everybody else for my problems in order to survive. And up until a certain point, that kind of sort of works for us. But eventually and inevitably, we are all met with some sort of reckoning some sort of obstacle, some sort of impediment, this thing that's in the way that I just can't freaking get past. It's, and and that is this kind of self-evaluative identity crisis thing that every human being has to go through. And what most people do, because that happens throughout our entire lives, what most people do is they hit that wall and they go, Mm-mm, too hard, I can't do it. Because my my mental model, my ego, my identity has told me that I'm unsafe, I'm weak, everybody else is in charge, I can't do anything because it's all about them. And so I hit this wall, bam, and then I turn around and I go back the other way. Instead of pushing through and on the other side where I get to learn the truth about who I am as a human being, that I'm more powerful than I ever imagined, that I'm extremely capable, that I'm good inherently and that my role here on this earth isn't to survive. It's to help is to give back. And that, that, I mean, right. Like that's what's happened yeah. throughout the journey. Oh, absolutely. But, but for some of us, it takes a really freaking long ass time to figure that out <laughs> yeah. because we hit a lot of walls, but also, especially for you, man, like the, the, Mental model of everybody else is is in charge, and I'm powerless, and all this stuff is so deeply ingrained because it most likely goes all the way back into infancy, maybe even in utero, yeah. right? Because, yeah. the, and that and that's something that's really, really you know, not a fun thing to talk about with people. Is like there's,
1: but it's heavily researched.
0: There's stuff that yeah. happens to you in your early, early childhood. childhood that is still affecting you to this day, that's unanimously true for every human being. In fact, your brain as a young, young child for the first two to three years of your life, every single hour, your brain grows about 20,000 neurons. That's a lot because today your brain will grow somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 to 1,000 neurons a day rather than 20,000 20, neurons an a hour. Day, so your yeah. brain is literally, the mass of the brain is growing And the mental models of the world that you've created, your idea of how the world is, your perception of the world, is the scaffolding for your brain's physical growth. And so your brain develops, physically develops around these ideas that I'm unsafe, or that the world is responsible for me, or that I can't ever be safe. And that... that is the, the, you know, that's the nature of childhood trauma. And that's why we end up in these situations where we're looking for
2: stuff outside of us to control how we feel inside. That's addiction. Yeah, absolutely. And to touch on a little bit what you said, um, talking about, you know, survival, that's exactly where I was geared. Everything in me was geared to survive from early on. We were just trying to survive until we found the next place to live, until I found the next set of friends, until I, you know, XYZ happened. And something happened when, you know, in that, that age of 28 realm where I went from not needing to survive anymore and then I was trying to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent a few years just trying to figure out how to live, knowing that I didn't need to just survive, knowing that I wasn't going to go to jail at any given moment because I didn't have anything open and pending and I wasn't committing any new crimes, knowing that I wasn't going to lose everything I owned because of something to do with drugs, knowing that I wasn't going to, you know, sell everything that I owned for drugs. And, And then I learned how to live. I learned how to Um, I had to learn how to show up for a job every single day. And that was part of personal accountability. It's huge. And I saw other guys doing it. And so I was able to model that. And then I gained some self-respect for being able to accomplish those things. And then went from showing up at a job to um, accepting promotions and getting promoted in jobs and feeling some form of responsibility. And then I gained some more self-respect. And at some point, living, functioning in a somewhat normal way, Became natural, and then it turned to thriving. Mm. How do I figure out how to thrive? Because what I wanted for myself was something that I didn't ever even think was possible growing up and seeing the way other people lived. It was always those people get to live like that. Other people get to live like that. I don't get to live like that. And once the mindset shifted to how do I thrive? How do I do well? And, and both on an internal and external, um, b- level, you know, uh, externally was more of the easier ones to accomplish. How do I get, um, a better job? How do I, um, you know, fix and repair credit? How do I, um, uh, manage a budget? How do I, um, you know, find and do all these things that I've wanted to do, travel, passports, things like that internally, it was a little bit more of a, a, a difficult journey, you know, for me, the internal stuff is how do I go to sleep at night? Mm-hmm. You know, how do I shut off my brain from all of the self doubt and self critical thoughts that I have every single night when I, when my head hits the pillow? Um, how do I, I, I want to say love myself Yeah. But there was a place in time where it wasn't that. It was how do I not hate myself Wow. before I really carried the capacity to actually love myself or knew that it was possible to love who I was. Um, it was how do I get to a place where I don't hate myself?
0: What's that like? Okay. Wrestling
2: with self-hate. It was and is and can be one of the most difficult things that I've I've dealt with. Um, you know, it, and really it started young. It started when I would see other kids live normally. I would go to their house and their parents loved each other and they, you know, had dinner at night and stuff like that. They went on trips and all of those things. And I, I hated myself because I wasn't them. Um, I hated myself cause I didn't feel normal. I didn't fit in. Um, I didn't really like anything about myself. And, and like we talked about, it was, you know, an external blame thing um until there was some accountability
0: sure um can we can we drill down a little bit on like because brindy's told me stories about how you got what you guys would do when you would hang out if we could drill down a little bit on like what it was really like in that environment for you like what what was really going on i mean we've kind of hit on you know mom went to jail all this stuff so we can kind of guess but if we could get a little bit more detailed and, and raw and real about like, what, what was that, what was really going on for
2: you during that time? Yeah. So like I said, I started making friends with kids who were not making the best choices um, and that attracted other kids who, you know, kind of, um, glamorized that lifestyle a little bit. And so my house was the place that we could all go for that. And so we would go to a pharmacy We would steal a bunch of over-the-counter medications. We would go back to my house, and we would all do them together. Um, My mom and whatever boyfriend at the time would be gone, and I knew where they kept their drugs and alcohol, and so we would take them. Um, We would steal my mom's car at night, and I remember one time I um, took her car, got pulled over, the cops called And they took, you know, they, my mom and her boyfriend at the time said, oh, well, he was just going to the gas station. They came and picked me up, got me out of trouble. Mm -hmm. Covered for Um, him. Covered for me. Exactly. Um, You know, and so I saw, you know, my mom threw a party one time and told me that I needed to sleep at a friend's house. And so I slept at my friend's house and we snuck over there. And I saw, you know, maybe 50 people out in the backyard. I saw a huge fight break out. I saw a gun get pulled. Um, I, it it was just chaotic.
1: Yeah. I remember coming over one time and um, because me and Kylie, we would rollerblade to your house. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we came over one time and I think it was just you and your mom were home and your mom was on the couch and she just had used and we would sit there and just like hang out with her and talk to her. But after like you sharing all this stuff and <clears throat> inter- your internal stuff and, and being friends with you, it's so weird. Cause like as kids, right. We don't really see what's outside our own little world. And so I never saw you that way. I never saw you as this poor kid who's, you know, growing up in this household and stuff like that. And, and, um, until I remember we came over and your mom just got done using and she was like slouching and like, you know, all this stuff. And
0: she was nodding out.
1: She was what? Yeah, She's like nodding. nodding yeah, nodding out and yeah. stuff like that. And, but it never even changed my perspective of you either, though. Like, I always remember you being so funny and so kind. You were like the nicest kid. And, um, but I just, like, my mind, just, like, my my world just, like, opened up. Like, it's crazy. As, uh, as, as kids, like, we only see here, like, right in front of us. And you were going through all this stuff at 13 that I couldn't even fathom, like, what it was that you were growing up in until, like, now. Like, how you're sharing it right now. I'm just like, whoa. Like, you were dealing with so much. And you did. You saw way more than like any child that i like feel like i know now like it it just like what so when you would go to other people's houses and see like how things function like what were your thought processes like ab- about your mom and stuff like when you would go home
2: well and that's where a lot of the you know hate from my mom started okay is it was you know the the internal kind of um track that would play is why can't we live like this and it's your fault okay Um, why can't you know we have a a normal life go on vacations um you know there was years where I couldn't play sports that I wanted to because we couldn't afford to sign up or there was years where um I you know signed up for baseball and I had a friend's mom sign me up and I didn't tell my mom that I was playing because she would show up to my games drunk Mm. and it was very embarrassing And, you know, all of those things really built up a huge resentment, um, dislike, um, you know, just a a lot of ill feelings towards my mom and the way that I was raised.
1: And. Did you, like, and and do you, like, not remember a time where it wasn't like that? Has this all, like, since you were a little, little kid, you just remember this is just how it was. Like, your life was just like this yeah, from was, very young age. Yep. Like, that was it. So when did you start recognizing that this is not normal?
2: Maybe the fifth or sixth grade okay. is the first time that I can remember having a friend for long enough to, like, get invited over to his house. Okay. And when I got to, because I, you know, I'd gone to cousins' houses and stuff, and a lot of my family lived very similar to how we lived. And so it was pretty chaotic over mm-hmm. there. Um, but yeah, fifth or sixth grade, I, I remember having some friends that I would go over their house after school and hang out. And I would, that's really when it kind of, the veil was pulled back to like, oh, there's a different way to live life. I thought that was just on television.
0: So this is something that needs to be highlighted. So many human beings on this planet for the first decade, 10 years, 20 years of their lives have no idea other than what they experience. If you yeah. grow up on the South side yeah. of Chicago yeah, it makes sense. and you never leave, the entire world is the South side of Chicago. Yeah. That's just the way your brain has to process your experience. If you grow up in a home full of chaos and drugs and alcohol and and men and, and craziness and whatever for the first 10 years of your life, your brain's entire scaffolding, the entire structure of your brain for the first 10 years has grown around believing that that is the way the entire world is. Think about the cascade of behavioral, emotional, relational, social structuring in the brain that lives today in the brains of all of these people.
1: Well yeah, cuz that's such a crucial part of your brain developing.
0: In fact, what yeah. we what we know, there's kind of like the big 5 traumas and um of the big 5 traumas as far as like they if one of these things happens to you, um it affects brain development so significantly that it's extremely difficult to overcome. Right? The two most influential on a human being of the big five are sexual abuse and poverty. Yeah. And that is something that is not understood well in in our country for the, for the lay people, I don't think. I don't think we understand. Like you could have... The other one is like physical abuse, right? Severe spiritual abuse, which is also not very well understood. And then the other one um, is, is like neglect, right? Which goes hand in hand with poverty. And those five kind of come in together, but there was this study, uh, done a few years back where they basically started to look at the lives of people and they found that there was a compounding effect of these traumas. And that if you experience two of the five or three of the five, the amount of likelihood that you develop severe mental illness the likelihood went up, you know, two, three, four, five times, 11 times, whatever. But when combined with poverty and one of the four, the likelihood that you develop severe mental illness skyrocketed three, four, five, six times, as opposed to being combined with another one. So what we, what we don't understand as a society very well is the influence of poverty on human development and how much of the developed first world lives in poverty. And what is the poverty line? Right? Yeah. The poverty line is not very low. It's below 30,000 a year. That's impoverished. Now it's probably higher than that because of the, the current state of our economy. Yeah. Right? So I know people, and I'm going to get on a little bit of political right here. Sorry. You're going to have to deal with it. I know people get really butthurt hurt and been out of shape when, um, you know, they're, they're, you're getting things leveraged, and 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 you're having to pay tax, and this and that, and the other. Our government is not very efficient at, at providing the services that are needed to help people who are impoverished. Right? That that's a huge problem. However, what we know is that the resources and kind of like like supplementation that these persons who grow up in poverty need are very expensive are costly are are resource intensive and it requires us as human beings to be generous in our understanding but we can't do that without without the knowledge we can't do that without people like Kevin coming on here and be like listen this was my life when I was freaking dead mm-hmm. it sucked i like clawed my way out yeah by the skin of my teeth and a bunch of luck cuz Truth be told, there's a lot of luck involved. Well, in your I would story.
1: say determination too.
0: Sure. And, and that's that's where I want to go next. It's like, yeah. what's the difference between you and the people who don't get out, which I think we should answer? But I think it's also important for the listeners to really self-reflect here for a minute and understand that, like, yeah, you got big problems. Yeah, life is hard. You got food.
1: Yeah.
0: Your your biggest worry in your life right now is like, oh man, you know, what am I gonna watch on Netflix tonight? <laughs> And I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to like look, talk down to anybody at all, but I, but I also want people to reflect. So I'll
1: recognize reflect. that like i have a
0: front row seat to this yeah. shit every day of my life and yeah. it breaks my damn heart because you know, we know each other from working at steps. I go down there every week and I see all these veterans and these guys who are borderline freaking suicidal and they grew up impoverished nine times out of 10. And so what's their choice? What's their only answer? They go in the military and then they get out of the military and then what does the VA do? Well, here's a couple benefits. Good luck. And then they end up in poverty again and they up addicted, right? They end up homeless. They end up suicidal. And then, you know, I got to worry about Netflix. <laughs> I just, I just think we can, we can do better. I really do. I think we can do better as human beings. I think we'd be more generous. I think we can be more understanding. I think we can be, um, a little bit more charitable in our lifestyle, more, willing to help. And I think that that breeds social connectedness. I think it breeds happiness. Yeah. I think it brings about a lot of good things for everybody involved, especially those who are on the receiving end, but also on the giving end. Right. So anyways, there's my, there's my soapbox.
1: <laughs> no, I love it. It's good. Well, and right. I
2: appreciate the soapbox. And for me, there's two things that, that that bring up is, you know, I, I look at my life as a kid and what was I worried about? I was worried about how I'm going to get to school. I was worried about what I'm going to eat, if there was going to be food in the fridge, if the power was going to get shut off. And then I look at my kids today. Right. Yeah. You know, and they have never had to experience mm-hmm. anything along those lines. You know, they, they worry about, they, they don't even realize that it is possible to worry about. And that's by design. That's everything that I ever wanted to give them is everything that I never had. Mm. Um, That's
0: quite the motivation, huh? Yeah.
2: Oh, it's huge. Huge. It's huge. And so looking at like those types of things, you know, when I was growing up all of the time where I was supposed to be learning about um, building self-confidence and building and forming relationships and studying schoolwork and, you know, figuring out what I'm going to do with my life, I wasn't, you know, and and I didn't even get an opportunity to to learn that until I was older. Um, And when you talked about, you know, being more charitable with our time, with our money, with all of those things. The only reason that I'm here today is because there were people that were Mm -hmm. charitable with their time, with their money, with their resources. You know, I was sitting in a treatment center and I didn't know where I was going to go afterwards. Um, I was, you know, this was 2013. Um, I had finished treatment and I didn't want to go back to my mom's house that was the only person that was willing to let me go sleep on their couch was my mom again but I knew what that was going to get me and I didn't want that I didn't know what I wanted but I knew I wanted something different and So I started asking for help. I started asking for suggestions. I started talking to everybody involved with the entire treatment center. And I started getting names and phone numbers and ideas and suggestions and I just blindly took them. I just blindly started making calls to people that I didn't know. I didn't even know what, you know, I I didn't even know what I was calling for. I was just given a name and a phone number and I called this guy and I'll never forget this guy. Um, His name was John Stone and he was probably 80 years old at the time um he was a very religious man and had never touched drugs alcohol even, probably even a cigarette in his entire life but because he was retired and he, the way that he lived he was trying to give back to people wow. and so I called him, and I I can remember the phone call because I said, hey, I don't really know if you can help me, but I was given your name and your phone number. And he asked what my situation was, and I talked to him through it, and he said, okay, well, I'll come down and meet with you in the next couple of days, and we'll see what we can do. And he came the next day, and we had a conversation about what I wanted out of life. And I didn't have huge dreams. I didn't say I wanted much. Um, the, the extent of what I wanted out of life was just to be okay, mm-hmm. was just to not have to go back to the hell that I was living in, that I'd created, um, that I had, you know, organized and, and facilitated and, um, you know, really brought on myself through a lot of my choices through my adult years. And I remember just telling him that I just wanted something different, that I just wanted to be okay, that I just wanted to figure out how to live life without drugs. And he said, I appreciate your honesty. I have three guys that are in front of you for a spot in our house. But because of the conversation that we just had, I'm going to take you. And then I told him I didn't have any money. (laughs) And he said, I don't care. (laughs) He says, I don't care. I believe in you. And I believe that if I give you a chance, you'll figure it out. And he gave me that chance. And it, and it wasn't even like, okay, here's the plan. He said, are you ready to go today?
1: Oh, and I wow. said,
2: sure. And he told me to go get my stuff. And I went and packed my stuff. And I had no clue where I was going. I had no clue what I was doing. I, all I knew is that he, had, um, he, he organized and ran a, a sober living home. And I didn't know what sober living was. This was ten years ago. Um, I did, I hadn't, you know, done a lot in treatment, so I hadn't really heard about this. And I packed my stuff, and he walked me into this house, introduced me to a guy, and said, "Hey, this is your house manager. He's going to tell you what to do."
1: Wow! What courage, Kevin.
2: Kevin's a
0: badass man. <laughs> it's weird because it didn't feel like courage at the time; <laughs> it felt like desperation, right? It it felt like desperation. But I think the line between desperation and courage is real thin. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I because mean, you could have gone back to doing what you did before.
1: Could have went and slept on your mom's couch.
0: Absolutely, but yeah. but you had to dig deep and choose to go into the
2: unknown. I mean, that's that's terrifying, and that's what courage is. Yep, and that was you know, and that was where I moved into that house where I got to see people being accountable. Um, and I got to see men in recovery mm-hmm. and that was huge for me because none of my friends had ever gotten clean before they died or they went to
1: prison. I say We lost a lot of friends, mm-hmm. a lot.
2: Yep. And yep. we continue to lose them. Yeah. You know, they, they die and they go to prison. Mm-hmm. And I assumed that one of those two outcomes was my path yeah. until this kind of, um, catalyst. And, it was the first time that I saw hope and the first time that I saw possibility. And it was the first time that I saw people being charitable. And it was other guys saying, hey, do you want to go do this? Do you want to go do this? Oh, you need a job. They're hiring. They're hiring. This guy works there. And you could ride with him. And it was all these things. And and you know, not only did I get to accept that help, but at some point, I got to turn around and offer the same things.
0: Amazing.
1: That's what's so awesome about service, though, and people being charitable is not only are you helping someone, but then it shows that person I can do the same thing. You know, like when you get to a place where you can do it, like you do, like you help people now.
0: It's a contagion, man. Yeah. 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 Well, and to keep it on the dark again,
1: it's <laughs> <laughs> Matt's favorite place,
0: uh, I don't know <laughs> but, uh, uh, sobering, <laughs> no pun intended. Reality is that in, 2021, for the first time in history, we had six-figure overdose deaths. So as much as we're like, recovery is awesome, people are getting better, more people are dying than ever from overdose. And disproportionately, significantly disproportionately, those are people in poverty.
1: Well, we also have to talk about the drugs are different now. They Fentanyl is a big deal. Yeah. Fentanyl has changed the the community of doing drugs and overdoses
0: for sure. That's, that's a big part of it. Access is, is, has increased not as as clean
1: as it used to be people.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, that's, that's a big part of it. But, But the reality is more people than ever are using. Yeah. And it's a contagion. And so what we need is we need a movement and the, and the 12 step movement is incredible, right? This, and what is, what is the foundational kind of concept underneath the 12 step movement? It's service.
1: Yeah.
0: And, I have this incredible privilege of, of meeting people like you, man, because we met through steps and, you know, working alongside each other to try and help these recovering guys to figure anything out, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> Let alone we'll
1: find their hope, right? You're ha- like helping them find hope.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just a
1: little bit of hope is what can drive the thing, someone to change their life.
0: The thing that brings about the most hope. The thing that brings about the most change is when these guys finally get it and they go, Oh, this isn't about me. This is about us. Mm-hmm. The, we is greater than me. Me. Yeah. Concept that we talk about all the time. And if I can grasp that my possibility to help the world is way bigger than I ever imagined all of a sudden I have a lot of motivation to do the next hard thing does that play a role in your recovery so so you go to sober living 28 years old and then you somehow bridge the gap between there and becoming
1: where you're at today do you now yeah
0: oh and we got to get into a little valley that we hit too but like Twenty-eight to are you 40 now? The hell are you? 38. 38. No. Tw ten years. So give us a 10-year journey more or less. What what goes down from 28
2: to now? So I spent about four years when I first got clean just being completely immersed in recovery. It 12 was step meetings, 12 step meetings, sponsorships, conventions, step- sponsorships, um, you know dinners after the meetings, movies after the meetings, um, Just you know, like events, fundra- fundraisers. It's your new environment. Okay. Yeah. It was, you know, it was my tribe. Mm. It, it absolutely was my tribe of people. We were, you know, trying to help each other. We were building each other up. We were facing the world together. Um, and, you know, it, it felt like probably closer to the teenage years that I missed because it was, you know, we would we would have jobs and, and, you know, pay bills and stuff like that, a little bit different. But it was like, hey, we're going to movies, we're going, you know, they have 12-step everything, you know, there are events and parties and stuff like that. And it's by design, because, you know, when um, I didn't have a place to go for Thanksgiving, when I didn't have a place to go for Christmas, when I didn't have a sober place to go for New Year's, there was always a twelve-step func- function. Mm. Thanks, Jordan Lee. Yeah. <laughs>
1: you know,
2: there, there was, there always is, and there still is. Yeah. Um, and so I spent a long time doing that, and then I started to grow a little bit. Um, I, I started to get jobs that were more career focused. Um, you know, that that were a little bit more long-term. That I had some more responsibility, um, and I, you know, really started to focus there. I started playing, you know, recovery league softball. Softball. Thanks Jordan Lee. (laughs) (laughs) You know, some, some of those things that that were so huge and paramount to to my own, my early recovery. Um, And then I really started to grow. And, you know, as as the story goes, I met a girl, Mm. you know, I, I I met a girl who was out of my league who probably still is out of my league. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I, I met, I met someone that I connected with on a level that I didn't know was possible. And we had, we have one common goal and it's what I touched on earlier. It's to give and provide our kids with a life that we didn't get, we didn't ever dream of and to make things as good for them as possible. Who is this spectacular human being you speak of? (laughs) So her name's Michelle. The Uh, one and only. The one and only. We've been together for about 6 years now. Um we got engaged a few years ago and we are probably going to get married at some point this year. We're still figuring out details. It's not going to be like some big extravagant like even normal wedding. So no open bar. No, it will, <laughs> it will be on a beach in some other country with just our kids. Good That's for you. rad. Yep. Yeah. I love and, that. And it will, you know, it, it's just going to be, it's not, you know, we're not shooting for a traditional wedding. We just want to have a ceremony that shows our kids that, hey, we are committed to each other forever. That's beautiful. Um, so
0: real quick, I'm interjecting because yep. a lot of people listening to this podcast are dear hollow alumni. Okay. This is the one and only Michelle. That one. That one. That that one. one. So Michelle, I know Michelle through dear hollow and Michelle is like admissions guru, extraordinaire person. Like if I am in a pinch and I'm like, what do I do with this person? I call Michelle <laughs> and her, her and Lisa and, and Ricky and bloomer, who's now your freaking business partner. right? Like It's cool. How we have all these awesome connections, connections within yeah. the recovery world Um that they, they help me out all the time. And that's, you guys are like this power couple. It's freaking sweet, man. I love it. But, yeah. yeah, that's Michelle. So those of you who who know Michelle, that's her. That's, he was able to freaking. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> good for you, dude. But you no. got something. You got something in there, buddy. That people uh,
2: want to be a part of You're a little a catch of that, too. that that yeah. Kevin sauce, man. We yeah, like that. I'll take know, it. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's I'll good. take it. Well, and you know, talking about how great it was, it, it now's as good time as ever to touch on like I almost lost it. Yeah, yeah. I almost lost all of it. Um, about. Four years ago, somewhere in there, four to five years ago, um, I went to a doctor for a regular checkup. He ran my blood work. And one of the things that he told me is your testosterone's a little bit low. And he recommended, you know, prescribing getting on testosterone TRT. And I went and talked to her about it. And she was a little hesitant um, about why would she be hesitant for you to get on test? um, One, because it involves a needle. Okay. And I have mm-hmm. a long history with, with needles, needles. Okay. Um, okay two, it's a medication that changes your hormones okay. hormones and it can you know play havoc um, And so we talked through it and she wasn't super comfortable with it but her um, she told me you should talk to your sponsor about it Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and see what he says and I said okay and so I talked to my sponsor about it and his answer was yeah I have other guys who are on it and it's done great things for them the one recommendation I would tell you is to get it prescribed in a form that's not a needle
1: oh, okay um,
2: and so his you know his hesitancy was was very similar to hers um, and so I lied to both of them and told them I wasn't going to get on it now I did asked, that
1: scare you when you did that lie did you, did you like stop and think about it or was it just something you just like did it and didn't even go back and think about it?
2: I did it and then went back and thought about it okay. afterwards and had already committed to it. So
1: it was too late. It was like, okay, I already I committed. It definitely like, wasn't yeah.
2: too late. Okay. Um, I think I had too much fear. Okay. And, I mean, this was- Fear of like losing everything? Fear of losing everything. Fear of getting caught. Fear of being honest. Okay. Mm. And it was also- There was something inside of me when that first big lie happened that really kind of um, triggered a state of, you know, back to when I was in full addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, there was the lying and the manipulating, like that feeling. Part woke up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. One of those parts woke up. And it really started me down a path that I couldn't have predicted ended up as, as bad as it did. Um, you know? And so it started with being um, on testosterone and then it went to, you know, the way that I'm wired is if I'm prescribed X amount, then a little bit more is probably a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And that just builds. And it got to a point where the doctor was prescribing me more and more because I know, um, what to say to a doctor when my goal is to get more. It isn't to be honest and take a, a, a good evaluation and see what's best. It's that the only goal was to get part more coming up again, yep. right? Yeah. That part's goal is
0: to get more. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, right. That and that's an
0: important is, distinction yeah. that I want to make too, because there's this idea, and you even kind of said it that like, that's just the way I am. I, I'm just I disagree with that. I don't think that that's the way you or anybody just inherently is. I think that's a survival mechanism that developed in you and in many of us as children that we needed to have in order to survive the environment they grew up in. that's that mental model thing. That's that ego thing. And we wrestle with this constantly in our lives. That's normal, right? Like this, this battle of, of me, versus my ego. So it would seem right. Is the ego wants me to be, appear a certain way and act a certain way and think a certain way and do a certain thing because it thinks that if I don't do that, bad things are going to happen. So part of that can be, well, according to me, ego, uh, we have one little taste. We have to go off to the races. Our job is to question that and say, mm, maybe not, maybe that's not true. Maybe, maybe, one lie doesn't need to lead to a thousand. (laughs) Maybe it's just normal to lie sometimes. And actually I can tell people and trust people that love me to accept me, even though I lie. But because of that deeply ingrained mental model from childhood, that is very difficult for a lot of us, myself included. Right. I want to hide. I don't want people to know the truth. I want to keep the facade up because if I'm exposed external world, right? If I'm exposed, the external world is going to
2: reject me. So I have to make sure that I hold it in tight. Sound Does that sound familiar at all? Yeah, that's exactly it. Absolutely. And so, you know, a little turned into more Yep. and that turned into um, experimenting with other, um, you know, steroids okay. and things that I was ordering off the internet and, Hiding them and doing them, you know, completely alone, completely isolated, which is just like same habit process as the old using exactly, stuff. exactly. different exactly. format, but similar behaviors. Yep.
1: So did people start seeing a behavior change in you, or was it more so you coming and being like, "Okay, I need some help."
2: Oh, it's definitely a behavior change. Okay. Um, it, it got to a point where, uh, using you know, steroids and other things that I was doing to mess with my hormones was giving me horrible side effects and the inability to kind of function. And so I went to, um, back to drug use. So what are some of those side
0: effects that led you to using,
2: um, the inability to sleep through the night, the, you know, sweating through my sheets, Mm. um, angry, ornery, um, and just all around emotionally unstable. Um, you know, I got to a point where I felt, you know, semi-suicidal, um, I got to a point where I, you know, I couldn't stand to look at myself in the mirror. Um, I couldn't stand who I was, um, and, and so you know, Michelle had asked me numerous times for you know, this went on for a while. You know, it was probably a year, year and a half of using you know testosterone, steroids, and then five to six months of using you know drugs from the gas station ultimately is what it was. That was the, the the thing that I could justify in my mind is they sell them at a oh, gas, the gas station. station they're yeah. legal. Um, it's not as bad. Whatever it was, um, it well, was like justification. What, what,
0: you, what drugs are you getting from a gas station? So
2: they have, it's basically THC, but it's changed somehow to make it legal in Utah and Kratom. Kratom. Um. Yep. And yeah, kratom, yep, and those were the two match. things
0: constantly.
1: Dude, that's you know. crazy, and they sell it at a gas station.
0: Dude, kratom's gnarly, man. People, <sighs> and there's like all sorts of push for people to legalize it in in across the nation, but it's only in some states or whatever. But that's stuff,
2: yeah, it's ref- it's a powerful, it's powerful, powerful, equally substance. as strong as almost any drug I've ever tried. Yeah, it's oh it's God opiotic. Gosh. It hits that opioid system yep. pretty good. Yep. come on, America, and so <laughs> take I, this
1: stuff off your shelf. Yeah,
2: and so Michelle had asked me a few times, like, "What's going on with you? You, you know, you don't seem okay." And I would lie in Tyler, it's, you know, my mental health suffering, my mental health struggling. And so I would go to the doctor and get put on um, you know, antidepressants and things like that, trying to fix something that wasn't broken. It was, you know, something else was completely going on. Mm-hmm. And then one day after one of those conversations of her asking me, like, hey, what's going on? You know, you're you, you don't seem okay, you're not okay. And and I'm sure there were, you know, just alarm bells going off everywhere because I wasn't okay. You know, I I was using, I was living a lie. I was doing everything that I didn't ever want to do in a life that I always dreamed I I wanted. And so I just told her finally, like, yes, I'm using, I'm using. And and that's it. Like, that's about all I could get out was I'm using. Mm. And that was... Probably the single hardest conversation I've ever had oh, in my I life. Can only
0: imagine. Because you've got it all, mm-hmm. seemingly, right? I, I mean, almost poetic the way you put that, right? I have the life I've always wanted mm-hmm. while I'm doing this stuff that I don't want to do. And it, it, there's this, this battle within of like, if I come clean, is it going to go away? Am I going to lose it?
2: And so we continue to hide. Yeah. And it got to a point where um, I, I almost had to make a choice of like, I'm going to go full on back into addiction, running from everything in my life where I'm just going to get honest, take some accountability and then see what happens.
0: How, what led you to choosing get honest and see what happens? I don't know.
2: I, but, it, well, think about it. It it was too heavy. Yeah to continue to lie anymore so so hold on one second say that again it was too heavy to carry on the lie so what we have to understand
0: from that this is really important is that sometimes the pressure of you know the discomfort of of bad behavior whatever we want to call it right this stuff that isn't working for us That pressure is the thing that motivates us to create the change. The discomfort is good. This is a natural thing within the world, within nature, right? Mother nature has created these patterns, this structure, these rules to life. And one of the rules to life is that I'm going to create pressure in your life. And your job is to respond to the pressure cooker and do something with it. But if we get to that wall... Mm -hmm. the pressure, and we cut and run and go back and do the same thing we did before, we never grow, we never learn, and we continue the same patterns. But Mother Nature in her infinite wisdom continues to provide that same opportunity for us, but it is always and forever discomfort.
1: Well, it reminds me of like the ten ninety podcast with Mason, how he always talks about it's the buffalo when a storm's coming, yep, they in. turn towards the storm to go and run through it and get through it faster rather than run away from it because it's gonna catch up to you. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's true. Yeah, absolutely. And and for me a big part was I started seeing myself as putting my kids through what I went through. Oh wow. Mm. I, I started seeing Ouch. myself as yep. you know dragging my kids into a life that I didn't ever want them to be a part of. And so whether or not it was going to be, you know, whether or not I was going to lose everything, like I had to just finally say something and it was, it was the pressure. um, And and it was the lies. And it's a lifetime of heat and pressure though, yeah,
0: Yeah. because you, you look at your kids and you go, I remember what that was like. I remember how uncomfortable that was. I remember that pressure cooker of childhood Mm -hmm. and I don't want that for them. And so I'm going to make this hard decision. That's, man, people, if you can just understand, if we, I should say we, because I'm included in this, right? If we can understand this law of nature, that discomfort is designed to create beauty, right? Heat creates diamonds, right? Pressure and heat over time. That's the whole law. Stop cutting, cutting and running, stop turning around, go forward. And that's what you did, man, for a really good reason. And a lot of times the motivator to do that next hard thing is my kids is, is a future possibility. And I would say 909 times out of a thousand, that motivator to continue forward, even though we know it's going to be hell
2: and it's gonna be painful, that motivator is love. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and it, it, it was an incredibly difficult decision. And that's just really part of where the difficulty started because it wasn't like, Hey, I got honest. Now everything's okay. No, yeah. it was, Never hey, is- I got honest. And now the work begins, yeah. um, you know, and one of my friends told me one time we were driving and he, you know, mentioned something that stuck with me, um, through the, his stuff. It's, you know, I had 10 miles into the forest. Now I have to hike 10 miles out. Wow. And so, you know, i was working in treatment at the time i was gm for a large facility here in utah and i had to go get honest with them next um i had to get honest with some of my closest friends in recovery um i i had to start just peeling back those layers and you know credit to michelle because i thought i was going to get honest with her and she was going to then tell me, okay, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, and then you need to do this. And she didn't do that. Hmm. She told me, figure out your plan, and then we'll see what happens. Wow. And that put everything back on me. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the responsibility, the choice to change in inadvertently back in my court. Inadvertently
0: sending a message of capability, too. Yeah, yeah. Because when we spoon feed people the answers, we kind of tell them like, "Here, let me let me kid glove this for you. Mm-hmm. Let me show you along the way." But she said, "No, you're a big boy. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Yeah. You you want this? Prove it. Yeah. And that's exactly it. And she's done her work too, so she understands <laughs> her value, which is a big part of that, right? And and people who understand their own value, hopefully, they're able to say that to the people that they love and have those boundaries. And that gave you this kind of like fire under your ass to, to then do what?
2: I started looking into going back to treatment. I knew from all of my past and previous experiences that I don't have a good track record of stopping using anything on my own when left in the same environment. I know that I need to, um, take some form of reset or, you know, break split gap from where I'm currently at. Um, and, and going back to treatment was The best option for me. And I, I had to swallow some pride because like I said, I was, I was working in treatment. And so I knew every employee of every treatment center or at least a few employees at every treatment center in Utah. And to start looking into where I'm going to go, I had to, you know, swallow some pride and, and You know, I talked to Michelle about some of my ideas and she threw out an idea of her own, of a place that we thought would be good. And I reached out to their admissions director. Um, I had a lot of shame. He didn't know I was using. I remember texting him and just saying, hey, can I send you um, an insurance card and tell me if you take it and I'll explain later and not tell anybody? And he said, yeah. Damn. And so I sent him the picture of my insurance card bro. And what was that like, dude? It was whole, oh. there was, it was a very quick moment where it was incredibly scary. Yeah. I sent the picture and within seconds of sending that, the text that came back said, anything you need. The answer is yes. Oh. That's this community. Yep. Yeah.
0: That, that is, I get emotion. <laughs> Because that is what, that is what we are about. That is this community. We we don't care. We get it. Yeah. Like, it, it, this is hard, man.
1: Life is hard. life is
0: brutal. It freaking rapes you on <laughs> repeat, dude. It's horrible, and 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 sometimes we're the ones doing the bad stuff to ourselves, right? Like, but in, in your case, man, like. I can only imagine that moment because I put myself in your shoes very easily. Cause I can imagine myself in this situation and reaching out to a friend like this guy who I know because mm-hmm. I know everybody in the community too. Yeah. And be like, hey, will you read this insurance <laughs> card? Like thinking like, okay, as long as I don't say it, and then immediately yep. just wow.
2: love, just support and love. And and here yeah. we are. And you know, my my next step was um I went and talked to my boss. And I pulled him aside and I said, hey, I need to talk to you. And we went and sat in his car. And I said, I've been lying. I've been using. This is what I've been doing. And he said, and I was so worried about my job. And he said, none of this matters. You matter. You do whatever you need to do to get right. And we'll support it. And it was another thing where, you know, I had this whole story in my head, like they're going to hate me. They're going to fire me on the spot. They're going to, you know, trash me in the community and do all these things. And, and the, the answer that I got was the opposite of that, you know? And, and so I took a, I took a leap and I went to treatment. Um, I went to treatment not knowing if I was going to be able to go back home with my kids afterwards, not knowing if I was going to be able to go back to my job. Um, not knowing any of these things, but knowing that I needed to do something because I couldn't keep going. Mm. I couldn't keep doing what I had been doing. And so none of it mattered because I had to make some change. And it was an incredibly difficult, but incredibly rewarding experience. And I got to do so many, so many amazing things that were so far out of my comfort level. And I got to learn so much because when I went to treatment the first time at the age of 28, I went to treatment homeless with a backpack full of clothes, um, maybe two or three books and an iPod. And that was all I owned. And I went there, you know, fresh off of shooting heroin. I went there you know, after burning bridge and being involved in so much like crime and all of that stuff. And so I went there just trying to figure out how to not use. This last time I went to treatment, I I went with the mindset of, I'm going to figure out how I can be the best version of myself. And I dug in. I did everything that I could. Um, I took advantage of every opportunity that I could. And then I, I, I was able to go home to Michelle and the kids. And that first six months out of treatment was rough. We didn't know if we were going to make it. We didn't know what this new version of me looked like, what this new version of us looked like. Um, I left the job that I was at because I wanted to try to figure out something else to do with my life that wasn't treatment related. Um, and I, I did everything that I could to make it right. I could, did everything I could to be accountable and open and honest. And there was a point at, you know, between six and nine months after treatment where things started to click again. You know, I started to feel like a better version of my old self where Michelle and I's relationship, we started to connect again. And as rough as it was going through all of that stuff, the man I am today is better than the guy I was before I started testosterone and steroids and using. And so... You know, whatever the case, I can't go back and fix it or change it, but I can take it as, yeah, that was a rough period of my life, but it has catapulted me into a huge, huge difference of a man, a father, a business owner, you know, all of these things that I didn't know were possible growing up. And and I've got a life today where my stresses are still there, but I get to stress about different things. I don't stress because I'm carrying lies and secrets. I don't stress because I'm worried about, you know, any of the things that I ever had to worry about as a kid. I stress now because I'm like, okay, well, how do I make it to, you know, baseball and basketball and softball and do all of these things and still be a business owner? And how do I show up for, um, you know, my partner, as a, a, a support and as everything that she needs. And, you know, I, I, I stress today and, you know, it kind of all ties back into what we touched on in the beginning. You know, when I, when I lay my pillow down, my head on my pillow at night, I feel accomplished. I feel like a good guy. I feel like I'm being the, kind, the type of guy that I wish I had in my life. You know, and I, I've got mm-hmm. these three kids who looked up to me and I still have no idea what I'm doing as a parent. <laughs> Never you know, do. It's I, crazy.
1: I wish it came with a manual. Shoot from him. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So at
2: all times. Dude, Dude, they're our biggest
1: teachers, aren't they? Oh, oh my gosh.
2: <laughs> so beautiful and scary and and, and Well, and it's, yeah. And it's so cool. And my, my kids are, they're so different and then they're so similar, you know, yeah. and, and they're going through different things at different times and. You know, trying to figure out how to, you know, help and encourage and love and, you know, discipline and, you know, all of the things that come with it. Like, that's a cool challenge. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. You know, because we look at, you know, what what's the outcome? I have no clue what the outcome is going to be. But I'm going to look back and think, man, did I show up.
0: Yeah. Damn, brother. Yeah.
2: Well, for what's worth, man, I'm proud of you,
0: bro. Thank you. Yeah. Because it's, it's been a rough journey, dude. And on the sidelines over here, watching, cheering you on has been, right? Like, how much do we love this dude? I know. I'm just (laughs) such a good dude. You
1: are. You look great. Like, you can see it on you physically. Like, you're shining. That's sweat. Your energy. No, no, I'm serious. Your energy, like, your frequencies, they are high. And they, like, it, it feels good being in a room with you. Like, it's amazing. Like, contributing to the world really does something for us as human beings and that energy feeds off and you can feel it and you contribute to this world. And I mean, you're amazing, Kevin. Come
0: so what are way. you, what are you doing these days to contribute to the world? What's your uh, latest endeavor
2: professionally? So plug it away, buddy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a friend and I who I had worked with in treatment years ago, he left treatment after I did. Um, he went to, uh, he got his real estate license and he's a licensed real estate agent. And I remember having a conversation with Michelle not too long ago and kind of talking to her about wanting to do more. And she said, you should, you know, it was all support and encouragement. And I was like, okay, you know, and that, that little thought turned into a big thought. And I text one of my friends and said, do you want to start a restoration company with me? And very quickly. He's just responded with yes. (laughs) And we had that conversation and we started the ball rolling on it. And then we, we have another friend who expressed some interest in it as well. And so we brought him in and it was just one of those things that started with an idea. We put a little bit of energy and a little bit of effort into it and it started snowballing and um, gaining momentum on its own. And it's probably been four months now, four months, five months. We've had an open and operational restoration company and we are learning and we are growing and we are figuring things out as we go. And I have so many great people in my life that support it. My old boss, who was my boss at a restoration company? He was one that you know when I when I got clean again this time, I reached out to him as a friend and I said, "Hey, I th- I'm going to switch careers." And he said, "Well, we're not looking for somebody, but if you're looking, we would have a conversation." They gave me an opportunity, and I remember reaching out to him and I said, "Hey," and I was nervous, and I said, "I, I think I want to start a restoration company." And his response was, "You should. Um, you absolutely should." Are so good. Yeah. And whatever help you need, I'm here. That's awesome. And it was it wasn't a surface answer because he's been huge. You know, he's been incredibly helpful. You didn't have to do that. No,
0: no. That, that's the thing we're talking about before, right? Mm-hmm. Handout. Yeah. Give. Don't give a handout. Put your hand out. Yep. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Offer
0: yeah. it. And, and that's how we work together, cohesively, collaboratively, right? He could have been like, no, man, you're going to be my competition. Like, I'm going to ice you out. But he didn't. Yeah. And it probably has helped him, too, in, on his side of things.
2: Yeah. Well, and, I mean, if we want to focus on pro- the, the probables of why, he's also in recovery. There you go. And that's the mindset. How can I help? That's cool. Who can I help? Love that love that. So what's the name of your restoration company? Utah Restoration Company. Utah Restoration Company, original. I like it.
0: Um <laughs> <laughs> I, my, For all your restoration needs. So yes. so what is how it? How
1: do people get a hold of you? Yeah, yeah, how do they get a
0: hold of you? Specifically what do you do? So like you have like a, a, a like a flood or something in the house or smoke flood, damage, fire,
2: wind, mold. Um we do I mean a little bit of all of it. Um, our niche and specialty, we probably do more flood and water damage than anything. I think that's just cause it happens, it happens more. Most, yeah. Um, <laughs> we also do a lot of mold, uh, mold testing, mold remediation. Um, there's a lot of times where I just walk people through how to do it on their own, okay. where I don't want to take them for, you know, any amount of money because it's a small project and they seem semi handy and it's something they can tackle. Um, so we've got a website, it's restoring utah.com. Like it. Um, yeah. Anywhere on the website, there's contact forms. There's phone numbers. There's any way you want to get a hold of us. Cool, man. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, Sweet. That's, that's awesome. awesome.
1: Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Kevin.
2: Yeah. You're a stud, man. Thank you so much. No, thank you guys for having me. I, you know, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the help that you've been in my life. You know, the first time that I saw Brindy again was at your dear hollow Christmas party. <laughs> when Michelle was working there. I didn't really know you. Yeah. And I saw Brendan was really random. And so just the fact that like that, you know, that interaction turned into, you know, what it is now where, you know, you've helped me through so much and it is, it's just amazing. Love you, man. I love you guys. I appreciate you both. Likewise.
0: Thanks folks. See you next time. Finding Strength Podcast is sponsored by Avantacool cool, yeah cold plunges who's surprised we got a cold plunge sponsor <laughs> yeah i met jeff Remfer at a first responder conference not too long ago he and his brother dave are the owners and jeff is a first responder guy they are killing it they're uh this amazing cold plunges we just got one put in our house how do you like it
1: i love it actually i mean it's game
0: changer it's, huh it is
1: a game changer especially from coming from a uh, what horse
0: trough? Horse That's trough.
1: what we've been using. It worked. <laughs> hey, it was it good. Did. It worked. It was great. I love it.
0: But it but it doesn't I love have high... a UV filter. <laughs> freaking regular filter. It's, this thing has a hot tub filter.
1: Yeah, it was hot and cold. It's amazing. It goes to one hundred and
0: four degrees, mm-hmm. and then all the way down, down to forty-five like in degrees, thirties. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, into the high thirties is what they'll do. Yeah. Yeah, crazy good stuff. Which, we love it.
1: You don't need to go that low.
0: To well, get the benefits. Yeah, low 40s is actually really <laughs> what you need.
1: That's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, 45 degrees, three minutes, and then get me out. <laughs> and then get you out. Yeah, we love it.
0: But th- the main things that that our sponsor wants us to, to highlight is that it's got an all aluminum frame. It's light, easy to move around. We put it up on uh-huh. our deck. Yeah, We're able to get it up the stairs and stuff like that.
1: Installing it was the easiest thing. Like, that yeah. was the easiest part, was installing it. I was surprised we had... We took it up a flight of stairs onto our deck and it was not that hard. Yeah. <laughs> I was surprised how light it was. Right. Um. And then even like filling it up. How was that for you?
0: Super easy. Yeah. Really easy to use. I, I absolutely love this thing. It's got this huge pump in it. So it gets cold really quick and it can heat up really quick as well. And the best part, most hot tubs use like a 220 cable. You have to direct line in. Oh yeah, This thing uses 110. You just plug it into your regular freaking outlet yep. and you're ready to go. Um, another amazing benefit. If you use the code STRENGTH24 you will get 25% off 25% yes. off.
1: That's amazing.
0: Amazing. They're yep. hooking us up. They really love the cause. We love them. We couldn't be more grateful to these guys for sponsoring the show. So if you need a cold plunge, Avantacool, that is a V a dot com.
1: Avantacool. <laughs>